If you would take out your Bibles, we're studying the book of 1 Peter together, the book of 1 Peter, and today we'll be in 1 Peter uh, chapter 3, verse 17 to 22, and as you're turning there in your Bibles, just a handful of announcements that I'm blessed to give uh, this morning. One is that next Saturday is going to be the Bridge Restoration Ministry Fundraising Dinner. And uh, we really love this ministry and are so thankful to God for what he's doing in the lives of many men and women. We're going to see those who have graduated this last year be celebrated at the dinner. There will be a silent auction raffle for you if you'd like to bid on some items so that you can financially support uh, the ministry. And if you'd like tickets uh, for that ministry, I believe that you can get them at the Welcome Center table uh, right over here on your way out today or, of course, online at the Bridges website. Also, we wanted to be sure to remind all of the women that in two Saturdays, we have our annual women's conference. And I'm really excited about the content for this year. We have Dr. Julie Slattery coming to speak and minister to us. She's a renowned author and uh, psychologist and believer and theologian who has some great things, I think, to share. And her theme for the women's conference is going to be hiding in God. Uh, the idea is that as human beings, we often hide ourselves in many other identities, but as Christians, we're called to draw near to God. We're called to hide ourselves in him. And so for all of the women in the church, we'd love to see you out here on that Saturday to be ministered to. You can sign up for it uh, online at calvary.com. And then lastly, I wanted to make sure to remind all of you as a church that uh, Dr. Julie Slattery will also be sharing with the entire church uh, the Friday night before the women's conference. She's going to be giving a lecture on rethinking sexuality. Uh, she's written a book by this title recently. It is a biblical, solid look, revisiting what Scripture says about human sexuality. One of the tensions that we have as Christians in our modern age is the tension of holding fast to what the Scripture says, which is what we want to be all about, but also simultaneously we want to know how to give an answer to those who question us, but also we want to be available to those who are confused and hurting by the sexual ethic that our culture is now pushing and preaching. And so she has a great way forward, I think, for Christians and for churches like ours to be able to move forward in faithfulness on one hand, but also thinking strategically about how to minister uh, in the age that we're in, including to ourselves as human beings. If we're really honest, I think all of us have some element of sexual brokenness in our lives through either the things that we've done or the things we've been exposed to. And this is a really restorative word that she's going to share uh, with us. So we'd love to get you to that conference. It's a one-night uh, session, so you can get signed up for that at calvary.com uh, as well. Okay, today, like I said, we're in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 17 to 22. It's a fun one that we've got together, so let's read it in its entirety. If you look down in your Bibles and follow along with me, I'll read it out loud. Peter says, for it's better, verse 17, to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will. Right, that kind of causes some pause there for a second. Suffer for doing good if that be God's will than for doing evil. For verse 18, Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, 
that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. In which, verse 19, he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, verse 21, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who, verse 22, has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Let's pray again. Father, we again ask for the help of your spirit in knowing, understanding, and applying your word, and especially, Lord, this mentality Peter longs for for us. We pray that we'd understand it in your word and then adopt it into our lives practically today. We thank you, Lord, and we praise you. In Jesus' name, we pray together. Amen. Well, one of my uh, daughters recently in, uh, in college, it's hard for me to confess this, but she, in one of her college classes, was studying film, and she studied the movie Alien, and she came home, she said, Dad, I really think that you would like this movie. It came out in 1979. I was born in 1978, so I, and I have never seen uh, this movie. So we sat down recently, and we watched this movie. I'm not saying that I recommend it, but the, I would describe it as... Uh, It's okay, it's okay. <laughs> We're having a B issue up here, okay. I would describe the movie as uh, brilliantly disturbing. That was kind of the experience that I had. And if, if the amount of times that I jumped in shock during this movie is any uh, illustration at all, it's a movie that stood the test of time. Uh, in the movie, what you have is a group of uh, astronauts in the future, the distant future, flying on a mission where they, when they are attacked one by one on their ship by the gnarliest, creepiest alien that I think I've ever seen depicted on screen. It's just one by one, each one of these astronauts dies. And as you're watching this, you know, it's just kind of a scary moment. And I kind of go through a process when I'm watching something that's that intense. One thing that I do is I tell myself it's not real, you know. But the other thing that I do is I tell myself, I'm not at the end of the story yet. I'm not at the end of the narrative arc. The characters and the authors and the directors, they're all trying to tell me a story. And so right now in the intense moment, I'm not at the end of the story just yet. So as I was watching the movie, I saw Sigourney Weaver was the star of this movie and I'd seen her face on some of the promotional material for the sequel, so I knew that she survived. So I kept comforting myself with that. This lady's gonna make it. I think it looks like the alien's gonna liquefy her, but I know that she's gonna make it. Why am I saying this today? Well, in the passage that we are in, Peter understands the natural response that we as Christians might have to some of the things that he's been saying. He's been telling us, for instance, as we saw last week in verse 14, that there will be times as Christians that we might suffer for righteousness's sake. He told us back in 13, chapter, verse 13 of chapter 3 that we should prepare for the 
possibility that we might be harmed even if we are zealous for good works. He told us that we should fear not man, but Christ in the midst of this kind of world, and that we should be ready to explain the hope that's inside of us as we suffer well for Christ and his kingdom. And when you hear or read phrases like these, you have some sort of emotional response. To be honest, I know that some of you, even in the midst of a little bit of anxiety about it, might have a bit of excitement about it. I think many of you are rooting for, hoping for, as I am, the further purification of Jesus' church. You're hoping for an increase in righteousness, sobriety, and seriousness about the things of God and the gospel. And you know that should marginalization increase for Jesus' name, should it even reach into levels of persecution, you're hopeful that good things will happen to Jesus' bride as a result. But I think if we're honest, some of us are also nervous, scared. We don't like the idea of pain. We don't prefer it. We don't want to suffer. And Peter understands that response. So what he writes to us about in the passage that we read today is the full narrative arc of the Christian life. If we are attached to Jesus, as Scripture says we are, then his story will become our story. And Peter tells the story of Jesus, that Jesus suffered intensely, but then was raised and ascended to the right hand of the Father where he's in control and in power over all things. As God said through the prophet Malachi so many years ago, against a backdrop of difficulty and judgment, he said, but for you who fear my name, the son of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings and you shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. That's why Peter wrote this section that we just read today. He wanted us to observe Jesus's narrative arc, then secondly, Noah's narrative arc, so that we might consider our own narrative arc. Our story is not done. Just because Peter is talking to us about the possibility of suffering for righteousness' sake or suffering for doing good, that's not the end of our story. Even if we're marginalized today, we will be seated with glorious victory with Christ tomorrow. So that's what we're going to think about today, the story of Jesus, the story of Noah, and how it relates to our story as well. Okay, but before we do that, I need to address something that is fascinating in the passage uh, in front of us. It's, it's about Jesus' story, Noah's, Noah's story, and how it pertains to our story. But there are some things that Peter said that make this passage particularly uh, difficult. Uh, the, the overall meaning's not hard to understand. It's about Jesus and his victory and how Noah and us can partake of Jesus' victory. But Peter said some things that uh, have baffled scholars for a long time. Uh, it starts with what he says at the end of verse 18. If you look in your Bibles, he said that Jesus, after he died on the cross, was made alive in the Spirit. So there's some debate about what does that mean? What does it mean that Jesus was made alive in the Spirit? Then, in that in the Spirit state, Peter said that Jesus, in verse 19, went and proclaimed to the Spirit's who are in prison. And then finally, he described those spirits in prison 
as those who, in verse 20, in the days of Noah did not obey. All right, so there's some questions that we have about this statement from Peter. One question that we might ask is, who are these spirits that are in prison? Who is Peter referring to? A second question that we might ask is, and what did Jesus proclaim? It doesn't specifically say that he proclaimed the gospel or victory or judgment or condemnation. So what was it that Jesus proclaimed to whoever he proclaimed it to? And lastly, when did Jesus do this? When did Jesus proclaim these things? Did it happen after his resurrection, uh, before his ascension? Did it happen in between his death and resurrection during the three days in the grave? Did it happen in the times of Noah? When did it occur? Now, a lot of scholars have written a lot of words uh, about this passage, and I've read a fair amount of them uh, this last week, so you can thank me later for doing some of this work for you guys. And most scholars recognize that Peter's words are some of the most complex and difficult to decipher in the entire New Testament. I don't know if you guys know of the great reformer Martin Luther, but if you know anything about Martin Luther, you know that he was not afraid to have a strong opinion about things. And here's what Martin Luther said about this passage. He said, this is a strange text. He went on to say, it is certainly a more obscure passage than any other in the New Testament, and I still do not know for sure what the apostle meant. That's a Huge admission for Martin Luther because he was sure about a lot of things. So he says, I'm not really 100% sure what Peter meant in this passage. I'll give you the synopsis of the three main views that people hold. Some people think that what's happening here is that Peter's describing how Jesus went to the realm of the dead, the holding place of those who died before the cross, between the cross and the resurrection. So he dies is buried, and then in a spiritual sense goes into the realm of the dead and proclaimed victory specifically to Noah's generation. Why Noah's generation? It's hard to say, but that's what the text says. Now, inside of that camp, some people think that Jesus offered salvation to that group of unbelieving people from Noah's generation. I think that's a view we need to reject. Others think that Jesus announced condemnation to them, and others think that Jesus only announced the good news of the gospel to people who'd believed in faith in whatever revelation God had given to them from that generation. The second main view comes from those who think that Jesus, uh, all that Peter is saying is that Jesus, way back in Noah's day, that Jesus was preaching through Noah. You know, Jesus, as you know, is eternally existent. There's never a point where he's not been. He's the second person of the triune Godhead. So in this view, Noah was building the ark. Noah was preaching. Noah was talking to his generation. And Jesus was talking to Noah's generation through Noah, a group of people who right now, by the time Peter is around, a group of people from Noah's generation who were spirits in prison. They were being judged for their sins, so to speak. And if this is the right interpretation, then it merely means that God is faithful to communicate uh, to every generation through his people, just as he communicated through Noah. And then there are those who think that Jesus proclaimed after his death, 
perhaps before his resurrection or even after his resurrection, to fallen angels or demons about his victory on the cross, during the, especially during the three days between his death and resurrection. Uh, this might have involved a literal visit to that holding place, a place that would have been thought of as Sheol or hell at that point. And uh, perhaps it happened, as I said, sometime after the resurrection. Each one of these views, as you can see, is incompatible with the others. If one is true, the other two cannot be uh, true. Uh, now, for me, I'm usually pretty willing to take a stance on even hotly debated passages in Scripture but as I've read and read and studied and studied, I've seen that you've got some of the greatest minds in church history even who are still saying, you know, I'm not quite sure what Peter had in mind here. And there are plenty of complexities that I'm not letting you in on at this moment. And I think for me, I'd probably land right there myself today. I'd say, I don't think I can tell you which one of these views is correct, if any. If I had to guess, I wouldn't bet my life on it. I wouldn't even bet a nickel on it. But if I had to guess, I think I'd say that Jesus is announcing to the demonic world his victory over principalities and powers of darkness at some point after his death on the cross, maybe before his resurrection. But I'm open. And when I say something like this to you and give you this kind of explanation, and some of you might even be here today and you're like, man, I brought my friend to church today of all days. It might frustrate you a little bit. You know, you, you might want this to be clearer than it is. And it might even cause you to doubt a little bit the inerrancy of Scripture. You see, one of the doctrines that Christians hold to is called the perspicuity of Scripture or the clarity of Scripture. What that means is that Christians believe that though it needs to be studied and debated and scholars need to do work on it and the spirit needs to be engaged, we believe that the Bible is a book that can be understood. It might take a lot of work to understand it, but it can be understood. And I think that as Christians, we should rejoice that the Bible is as understood and clear as it is. I mean, it's an ancient book from across various cultures and times, and it is remarkably knowable. But passages like this might cause you to doubt its knowability a little bit, its clarity a little bit. And to that, what I would say is that I believe that we should allow the Bible to be a holy book that is sometimes confounding to us. You know, on the north side of the Monterey Bay lies the city of Santa Cruz. And in Santa Cruz, they've been saying for years, keep Santa Cruz weird. Keep Santa Cruz weird. I know Austin, Texas took it for their own, but it started in Santa Cruz. Keep Santa Cruz weird. And I really feel like mission accomplished. They are doing it. But I think it's okay for a Christian to say, keep the Bible weird. You know, there are going to be bizarre passages that we don't need to soften. It's a book written from the infinite to the finite. So we should expect that there are times where we are still grappling with what it means. A few years ago, my kids turned me on to the Marvel Cinematic Universe. I just never liked superhero movies before, but because of their love for them, I got into them and all of that. I still can't understand the timeline of the Marvel Cinematic Universe so if I can't understand that, then I'm pretty sure that there should be some mysteries in the Bible that I'm still not entirely dialed in on. 
But I'd remind you that the point of the passage is clear. Peter said in verse 17, look at it again with me, it's better to suffer for good if that should be God's will than for doing evil. And this whole section backs him up. When you suffer for doing good, according to this passage, it's evidence that you are on the right side of the eschatological divide. That means that you're on the right side of history if you suffer at all for Jesus. That's the point of these verses. So let's consider these three stories, Jesus's, Noah's, and ours from this passage. Let's start out with Jesus's narrative arc. Look again at verse 18 with me, and you'll see where I'm going with this. He said, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Okay, overall, what Peter means by pointing out Jesus in this place is that he's trying to highlight that Jesus suffered. He's been talking to us about the possibility that we would suffer for doing good, suffer for righteousness' sake. So in the context, what he means to say is that look at Jesus. When you think about Jesus, it makes sense then that we as Jesus' people would expect that there might be times where we suffer like Jesus and even that we suffer for Jesus. And why wouldn't we? Jesus suffered, he says, the righteous for the unrighteous so that he might bring people to God. And just last week we saw Peter say, hey, when you suffer, suffer well so that people who don't know God ask you, hey, what's the reason for the hope that's inside of you? Apparently our suffering is meant to draw people to God, of course, in a different way than Jesus' suffering draws people to God, but that's our goal as well. We want to bring people to God. Why would our Lord, our champion, our model, our ultimate example, the one that the Spirit is trying to turn us into, Jesus, why would he suffer, yet we as his people would expect not to? Vicarious atonement does not mean vicarious suffering. One day we won't suffer anymore, but right now, the part of the narrative arc that we're in, that's where we're at. We will suffer at times even for Jesus's sake and name. It's confusing to me that sometimes a believer would partake of or believe in a doctrine that indicates that God would never want them or allow them to go through a time of suffering. There are whole streams of Christianity today where if you are suffering in any way, it must be a sign to them of your lack of faith. That just doesn't make any sense to me. Christians believe in the Bible. In the Bible is the book of Job. In the Bible are Psalms that talk about the sadnesses of life. In the Bible is the book of Lamentations. In the Bible are story after story of suffering prophets. In the Bible is the story of the apostles who suffered intensely to bring the gospel to the ends of the world. And in the Bible is the great hero, Jesus Christ, who won through suffering. So I think what Peter is doing is saying that's Jesus' story. He suffered. Now, when he talks about Jesus' suffering, look at some of the stages or ways that Peter describes it. It's actually pretty theologically profound. He says in verse 18 that Jesus suffered once. You know, in the Old Testament, they offered all kinds of sacrifices over and over and over again 
indicating that the sacrifices were not sufficient to truly deal with a person's sin. But Jesus suffered once, which indicates that his sacrifice is sufficient. Peter also said that Jesus suffered for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. I don't know if you know this, but there are some today who say that when Jesus died on the cross, he wasn't dying in anyone's place. He wasn't dying for anyone's sins, but he was dying as a good example of great sacrifice, laying down his life in love. But here, Peter says it point blank. No, when Jesus died, it was the righteous dying for the unrighteous. He substituted himself for a sinful humanity on the cross. Peter also said in verse 18 that when Jesus died, he did it so that he might bring us to God. That's his purpose and his mission. This helps us understand theologically that the only way to get to God, the only way to get to the heavenly father is through Jesus and what he did for us on the cross. He truly is, as he said, the way to God. But Peter also said, in verse 18 and 21, that Jesus experienced after his death, resurrection. He called it resurrection in verse 21, but in verse 18, he said, Jesus was made alive in the spirit. He was raised. What happened after Jesus rose? What happened to the rest of Jesus's narrative arc? Well, look at verse 22 with me. Peter said, he's now gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Words can't express how comforting this word would have been to the original readers of this letter. You know, Rome was a threat for them. Nero was in charge of Rome at this time, and he was a disaster waiting to happen. They were at the mercy of dictates and laws and governing authorities. And to hear that Christ was in control that he's over all things, even right now, over angels and authorities and powers, would have been great, a great comfort to them. Jesus said in Matthew 28, verse 18, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. And for them to hear that, to see that from Peter, would have been greatly comforting. But this is a description of the narrative arc of Jesus' life. From suffering to sovereignty, from cross to throne, from pain to paradise, and we are wrapped up in Jesus if you're a Christian today. Now, the Bible says in Colossians 3, verse 3, that your life, if you're a Christian, is hidden right now. It's hidden with Christ in God. You're tied to Jesus. So what that means is that this future or this past for Jesus is your future. You will also rise. You will also be raised. You will also ascend. You will also live forever in his kingdom and experience his supreme power over all things. Okay, but there's a second story that Peter wanted us to focus on. He highlighted not just Jesus's narrative arc, but he also highlighted Noah's story as well. Now, Noah's story should be encouraging to every Christian today, especially if you've ever felt or experienced any marginalization because of your Christianity. Let's see what Peter said about Noah. Read verse 19 and 20 again with me. First, the disputed passage or the confusing passage. Christ went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when 
God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. One of the first things that Peter wants you to see about Noah's life is that when Noah was around, uh, he lived in a time of rampant disobedience to God. Uh, He calls it here uh, times when the people around him did not obey. There was just not a submission to God. Now, when Peter says this, he's actually putting it rather lightly. Listen to the way Genesis chapter 6 describes society at the time of Noah. Genesis 6 verse 5 says, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth at that time, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. That's a drastic description. It's very extreme. Perhaps you came today and you hold the opinion that morality has never been worse than it is right now today. I hope that Genesis 6 and the story of Noah changes your mind about that. Uh, Humanity's rebellion against God today has not quite reached the proportions that it reached in the days of Noah. Every thought of every person, uh, evil only and exclusively, continually, is the description God gives. That said, I do think that there's something about the Western society we're in today that we can relate to with the age of Noah. I want you to think about this for a second with me. In the book of Romans, Paul describes in the first three chapters three different types of society. One society has cast off all morality and is living an upside-down morality as a result. Another society is hyper-moral yet without God. And the third society is hyper-religious yet without the gospel, so they create a legalistic environment. And I think if you scan the various nations and people groups of this world, you can find all three of those types of societies represented today. But I believe that the society that we're in is represented most fully in the first category, a society that is upside down to where they adopted a confused morality. And here's what Paul said about that kind of society. He said it begins with the suppression of, of the truth about God. And I think that we've done that in this Western society. We've suppressed the truth about God. When that happens, Paul says, the hearts of humanity in that society become darkened. They claim wisdom, Paul said, but they become fools, especially in matters pertaining to morality. So you might still expect great feats of engineering or science or something like that, but when it comes to morality, it's all upside down. So God, Paul said, gives up societies like these to the lust of their hearts to impurity, to dishonorable passions, and to a debased mind to do what ought not be done. And what Paul said is that in societies like these, people not only do evil things, but they begin to give approval to those who practice them. In other words, they celebrate things that should not be celebrated. So though Noah's age, I think, was further along than our age, I think there are some similarities in our Romans 1 culture. We might be experiencing a little taste of Noah's day in our time. Now, Noah 
you should see, made it through a time like that. He was in the extreme minority. Peter says a few persons, that is eight people, made it into the boat. Eight people believed the message that Noah preached. His whole society was swept up in rebellion against God before they were swept up into God's judgment. But the idea that Peter is presenting is that if Noah could make it when he was in such an extreme minority position, then so can we. Because, I mean, we might be small, but look around. We've got way more than eight people that are here today. We've got the body of Christ. We can support each other in some beautiful ways. And what Noah did is Noah endured, and he endured partly all that was happening in humanity, but he also endured God. He endured God's endurance. Look at what Peter says there in verse 20. He said, in the days of Noah, God's patience waited. So what Noah was experiencing was God waiting and waiting and waiting to deliver his judgment. Though times were bad, though human depravity was on full display, God was merciful and patiently waited to deliver his judgment. I think this should help us as we consider the times that we're living in today. I personally, my view of the end times and of prophecy is that there are no more prophecies that have to be fulfilled before Jesus takes his church home to be with himself. It's the imminency of Christ's return. I believe in that. I believe that Jesus could take us home to be with him at any moment and that there's no prophecy that I need to see fulfilled before that event can occur. I do think there's prophecies in the future which will take place after Christ calls his church to be home. But as much as I think that as Christians we should be looking forward to, longing for Jesus's ultimate return and the fulfillment of his kingdom, I get concerned. I get concerned when tumultuous times cause believers to act as if the end is most certainly nigh. Now, Jesus said that even in the midst of wars, rumors of wars, famines, earthquakes, and pestilences, Jesus said, do not be alarmed in those days. The end is not yet. And one of the things that bugs me about Western believers getting all agitated in times of tumult, thinking, surely this is it, this is the end, is that it comes off as fairly myopic to me. Because there are many believers in other civilizations and societies who have been suffering for far longer than the temporary momentary chaos of our time and our moment. And for them, for many, many years, decades or centuries, they've suffered. Yet Christ has not yet returned. He's long-suffering. What I'm trying to say is that God waited a long time in Noah's days, and he might wait a long time in our days as well. He might not, but he might. Now, though Noah lived in times of darkness, he obeyed God and he preached to his generation. How did he preach? He preached by building that ark. That ark was a pulpit. <laughs> you know, as he's building that thing in the middle of nowhere, people are asking, what, why is he doing that? Well, he's saying that the judgment of God is going to come, that we need to repent, we need to turn to God. So Noah put his head down, he obeyed God, he obeyed God's word. And we're to do the same through our lives, 
We're to put our heads down, obey the Lord, and plead with our generation to be saved from sin and receive the gospel. And finally, at the end of Noah's story, what happened? Verse 20, he was brought safely through water. He lived. He survived. He was saved. So that's Noah's story. And it should be a massive encouragement to us today. You know, we go through a similar thing as, as Noah. We might be a small minority of people in a society hostile to the gospel, but we can endure like Noah did and ultimately experience salvation from the judgment to come. All right, but let's close by just thinking briefly about our story. We've thought about Jesus, we've thought about Noah, but what about us? Well, right now, the part of life that we're in, the part of the narrative arc of our lives where we're at is found in verse 17, if you'd look at it. He said, it's better to suffer for doing good than doing evil. That's our spot right now. That's what we're living in right now. Now, before the right now moment, we were water baptized. That's what he says in verse 21. He says, baptism, which corresponds to this, or to Noah's being brought safely through water, Noah's flood, Baptism now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body. It's not the ceremony of baptism that saves you. But what has happened inwardly before baptism, an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Peter's very careful how he says this. Uh, He wants us to know that he's thinking about our baptism because he was thinking about Noah's flood, and there's a lot of water involved in both. Peter's baptism or water baptism is something that happens at the beginning of our relationship with Jesus. But Peter doesn't want us to think that by being water baptized, we're somehow justified or saved. So he clarifies the point. He says that it comes through an internal work of God's spirit convicting you, making you want a clean conscience. And as you hear the gospel, you recognize that it's secured through the gospel, which is secured by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, is what he says in verse 21. So what is the narrative arc that Peter wants us to be conscious of? He wants us to remember that after we received Jesus, we were water baptized. Just as the flood washed away the old world, so water baptism pictures our break with the old life. You know, when a Christian's water baptized, it's a way for them to say, this is what Jesus did to me internally, but it's also for a way, a way for them to say to their church community, I will follow Jesus. And Peter is saying, I want you to keep saying that you will follow Jesus even if you suffer for doing good. When things get difficult, stay faithful, he's saying, to Jesus. And then after the water baptism, Peter says, the part of the story we're in is that we might right now suffer for doing good. Now, I'm not really even saying it as strongly as Peter said. He actually said in verse 17, there are times that it might be God's will for us to suffer for doing good. This is difficult for some of us to digest, like I said earlier. But let's think about this. Shouldn't we confess that sometimes suffering is the best thing for us? Aren't there times that our character is lacking or or shallow or in need of refinement and suffering is the perfect tool for God to use to produce it inside of us? 
Doesn't suffering shape us in different ways than ease shapes us? And what about times that suffering protects you or protects me from sin? I've thought about this often. I don't know all things. I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. And I've often wondered, how many times was I going to do something really stupid tomorrow so God allowed suffering into my life today to divert my course and to save me from an error that I would have committed? And doesn't suffering make us more effective when ministering to other people? I mean, how many of you, when you've gone through a really big trial, have been comforted by someone else who's gone through a really big trial that's similar in nature? It's just encouraging. It's really not very helpful to sit down with someone who says, man, I'm really sorry that you're going through such hardship and pain. I really never have in my life. It's been pretty easy and good. That's just not really helpful or comforting or encouraging. And can't our suffering bring us into deeper relationship with Jesus? Paul said to the Philippian church, I wanna know Jesus, including the fellowship of his sufferings. There's an aspect to who Jesus is that you cannot know without a bit of pain. But Peter's whole point, his question would be, wasn't Jesus' suffering designed to bring people to God? Maybe your suffering is meant to point people to God as well. So the story or the arc in this passage of our lives is we were justified by faith, we were water baptized, and now we suffer at times for his name. But that's not, as I've been saying, the end of our story. The end of our story is the end of Jesus' story. Verse 22, he went into heaven, he's at the right hand of God, with angels, authorities, and powers having been made sub subject to him. This is meant to comfort us about our future, but it's also meant probably more so to comfort us about our present day experience. Right now, we might, as Peter said, suffer for good, but Jesus is in heaven, in charge of everything, ruler over all. So if we suffer today, it does not escape, according to Peter, Jesus' vision and Jesus' planning. He sees it, and Peter dares to say that in a sense, he wills it. He's in control of our lives. And this means that from heaven, Jesus can supply all the grace and strength and power and might and victory and resources that we need to endure well. You know, when I was a boy, from time to time, my dad and I would go fly kites. And I grew up in Pacific Grove, so what that meant is that sometimes you would fly a kite, you'd get it in the air, and then you wouldn't see it anymore because of the fog. It was just up there. But you didn't let go of the string because you could feel the tension. You knew that you were still in possession of the kite, you just couldn't see it because it was covered by the elements. You could feel the pull, in other words. Christ today is in the heaven of heavens with all power and authority. And if you're a Christian, you are tethered right now to Jesus. You have to feel his pull. He's graciously interceding for you, the Bible says, standing with you in the trials and pains of life. And one day you'll be with Jesus and he'll remove all the trials and pains of life. So today, endure because you know the narrative arc your life, if you're a Christian, will take. And you got to trust Jesus all the way there. You know, I said earlier that Sigourney Weaver did not die in Alien. And you will not die. You will make it 
all the way into Christ's kingdom. So trust him.